Hi everybody, Carla here, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Let's continue with Charles Dickens and A Tale of Two Cities, Book 2, Chapter 23. This one is called Fire Rises. There was a change on the village where the fountain fell, and where the mender of roads went forth daily to hammer out of the stones on the highway such morsels of bread as might serve for patches to hold his poor ignorant soul and his poor reduced body together. The prison on the crag was not so dominant as of yore. There were soldiers to guard it, but not many. There were officers to guard the soldiers, but not one of them knew what his men would do, beyond this that it would probably not be what he was ordered. Far and wide lay a ruined country, yielding nothing but desolation. Every green leaf, every blade of grass and blade of grain, was as shriveled and poor as the miserable people. Everything was bowed down, dejected, oppressed, and broken. Habitations, fences, domesticated animals, men, women, children, and the soil that bore them all worn out. Monsignor, often a most worthy individual gentleman, was a national blessing, gave a chivalrous tone to things, was a polite example of luxurious and shining life, and a great deal more to equal purpose. Nevertheless, Monsignor, as a class had, somehow or other, brought things to this. Strange that creation, deigned expressly for Monsignor, should be so soon wrung dry and squeezed out. There must be something short-sighted in the eternal arrangement, surely. Thus it was, however, and the last drop of blood having been extracted from the flints, and the last screw of the rack having been turned so often that its purchase crumbled, and it now turned and turned with nothing to bite. Monsignor began to run away from a phenomenon so low and unaccountable. But this was not the change on the village and on many a village like it. For scores of years gone by, Monsignor had squeezed it and wrung it and had seldom graced it with his presence except for the pleasures of the chase. Now, found in hunting the people, now, found in hunting the beasts, for whose preservation Monsignor made edifying spaces of barbarous and barren wilderness. No, the change consisted in the appearance of strange faces of low caste, rather than in the disappearance of the high caste, chiseled and otherwise beautified and beautifying features of Monsignor. For in these times, as the mender of roads worked solitary in the dust, not often troubling himself to reflect that the dust he was and to dust he must return, being for the most part too much occupied in thinking how little he had for supper and how much more he would eat if he had it. In these times, as he raised his eyes from his lonely labor, and viewed the prospect, he would see some rough figure approaching on foot, the like of which was once a rarity in those parts, but was now a frequent presence. As it advanced, the mender of roads would discern without surprise that it was a shaggy-haired man, of almost barbarian aspect, tall in wooded shoes, and that were clumsy, even to the eyes of the mender of roads, grim, rough, swart, steeped in the mud and dust of many highways, dank with the marshy moisture of many low grounds, sprinkled with the thorns and leaves and moss of many byways through woods." Such a man came upon him, like a ghost, at noon in the July weather, as he sat on his heap of stones under a bank, taking such shelter as he could get from a shower of hail. The man looked at him, 
looked at the village in the hollow, at the mill, and at the prison on the crag. When he had identified these objects in what benighted mind he had, he said in a dialect that was just intelligible, How goes it, Jacques? All well, Jacques. Touch then. They joined hands, and the man sat down on the heap of stones. No dinner? Nothing but supper now, said the mender of roads with a hungry face. It is the fashion, growled the man. I meet no dinner anywhere. He took out a blackened pipe, filled it, lighted it with flint and steel, pulled at it until it was in a bright glow, then suddenly held it from him and dropped something into it from between his fingers and thumb that blazed and went out in a puff of smoke. Touch then. It was the turn of the mender of roads to say at this time, after observing these operations, they again joined hands. Tonight, said the mender of roads. Tonight, said the man, putting the pipe in his mouth. Where? Here. He and the mender of roads sat on the heap of stones, looking silently at one another, with the hail driving in between them like a pygmy charge of bayonets, until the sky began to clear over the village. Show me, said the traveler then, moving to the brow of the hill. See? returned the mender of roads with extended finger. You go down here, and straight through the street, and past the fountain, "'To the devil with all that,' interrupted the other, "'rolling his eye over the landscape. "'I go through no streets and pass no fountains. "'Well, well, about two leagues beyond the summit of the hill above the village. "'Good. When do you cease to work? "'At sunset. Will you wake me before departing? "'I have walked two nights without resting. "'Let me finish my pipe, and I shall sleep like a child. "'Will you wake me?' "'Surely.' "'The wayfarer smoked his pipe out, put it in his breast, flipped off his great wooden shoes, and lay down on his back in the, on the heap of stones. He was fast asleep directly. As the roadmender plied his dusty labor, and the hail clouds rolling away revealed bright bars and streaks of sky which were responded to by silver gleams upon the landscape, the little man, who wore a red cap now in place of his blue one, seemed fascinated by the figure on the heap of stones. His eyes were so often turned towards it that he used his tools mechanically, and, one would have said, to very poor account. The bronze face, the shaggy black hair and beard, the coarse woolen red cap, the rough medley dress and of homespun stuff and hairy skins of beasts, the powerful frame attenuated by spare living and the sullen and desperate compression of the lips in sleep inspired the mender of roads with awe. The traveler had traveled far and his feet were footsore and his ankles chafed and bleeding. His great shoes stuffed with leaves and grass had been heavy to drag over the many long leagues and his clothes were chafed into holes as he himself was into sores. Stooping down beside him, the road mender tried to get a peep at secret weapons in his breast or where not, but in vain, for he slept with his arms crossed upon him and set as resolutely as his lips. Fortified trenches and drawbridges, fortified upon him and set as resolutely as his lips, Fortified towns with their stockades, guardhouses, gates, trenches, and drawbridges seemed to the mender of roads to be so much air as against this figure. And when he lifted his eyes from it to the horizon and looked around, he saw in his small fancy similar figures stopped by no obstacle, tending to centers all over France. 
The man slept on, indifferent to showers of hail and intervals of brightness, to sunshine on his face and shadow, to the paltering lumps of, of dull ice on his body and the diamonds into which the sun changed them, until the sun was low in the west and the sky was glowing. Then the mender of roads, having got his tools together and all things ready to go down into the village, roused him. Good, said the sleeper, rising on his elbow. Two leagues beyond the summit of the hill? About, about good. The mender of roads went home with the dust going on before him according to the set of the wind and was soon at the fountain squeezing himself in among the lean kind brought there to drink and appearing even to whisper to them in his whispering to all the village. When the village had taken its poor supper, it did not creak to bed as it usually did, but came out of doors again and remained there. A curious contagion of whispering was upon it, and also, when it gathered together at the fountain in the dark, another curious contagion of looking expectantly at the sky in one direction only. Monsignor Gabel, chief functionary of the place, became uneasy, went out on his housetop alone, and looked in that direction too, glanced down from behind his chimneys at the darkening faces by the fountain below, and sent word to the sacristan who kept the keys of the church that there might be need to ring the tocsin by and by. The night deepened. The trees environing the old chateau, keeping its solitary state apart, moved in a rising wind as though they threatened the pile of building massive and dark in the gloom. Up the two terrace flights of steps in the rain, two flights of steps the rain ran wildly and beat at the great door like a swift messenger rousing those within uneasy rushes of wind went through the hall among the old spears and knives and passed lamenting up the stairs and shook the curtains of the bed where the last marquis had slept east west north and south through the woods four heavy treading unkempt figures crushed the high grass and cracked the branches striding on cautiously to come together into the courtyard Four lights broke out there and moved away in different directions and was all black again. But not for long. Presently, the chateau began to make itself strangely visible by some light of its own, as though it were growing luminous. Then a flickering streak played behind the architecture of the front, picking out transparent places and showing where balustrades, arches, and windows were. Then it soared higher and grew broader and brighter. Soon, from a score of the great windows, flames burst forth, and the stone faces awakened, stared out the fire. A faint murmur arose about the house from the few people who were left there, and there was a saddling of a horse and riding away. There was spurring and splashing through the darkness, and bridle was down in the space by the village fountain, and the latter days became impatient for an interview with him, and surrounding his house, Saruman summoned him to come forth for personal conference, whereupon Monsieur Gabel did heavily bar his door and retire to hold counsel with himself. The result of that conference was that Gabel again withdrew himself to his, hop to his housetop behind his stack of chimneys, this time resolved, if his door were broken in, he was a small southern man of relative temperament, to pitch himself head foremost over the parapet and crush a man or two below. Probably Monsieur Gabel passed a long night up there with the distant chateau for fire and candle and the beating at his door combined with the joy ringing for music not to mention his having an oil his oil-armed lamp slung across the road before his post-house gate which the village showed a lively inclination to displace in his favor 
a trying suspense to be passed a whole summer night on the brink of the black ocean, ready to take that plunge into it upon which Monsieur Gabel had resolved. But the friendly dawn appearing at last, and the rush candles of the village guttering out, the people happily dispersed, and Monsieur Gabel came down, bringing his life with him for that while. Within a few hundred miles, and in the light of other fires, there were other functionaries less fortunate. Th that night, and other nights, whom the rising sun found hanging across once peaceful streets where they had been born and bred. Also, there were other villagers and townspeople less fortunate than the mender of roads and his fellows, upon whom the functionaries and soldiery turned with success, and whom they strung up in their turn. But the fierce figures were steadily wending east, west, north, and south, be that as it would, and whosoever hung, fire burned. The altitude of the gallows that would turn to water and quench it, no functionary by any stretch of mathematics was able to calculate successfully. That'll do it for chapter 23. Thank you so much for joining me here at Carla Reads the Classics. I hope you enjoyed the reading. And, and until next time.